The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. It's our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. Are you any good at negotiation, really? Your salary, your new home, the number of times you make dinner for your family in a week. Negotiation is one of those life skills that, across every field, often separates the merely accomplished from the radically successful. Because most of us work and live with other people, and negotiating is at the heart of meaningful collaboration. Today's guest is Barry Nailbuff. He's a serial entrepreneur and a management professor at Yale, He's written several books on business strategy and game theory. He's a delight to speak with. His latest book is Split the Pie, a radical new way to negotiate. Barry says there should be a principled way to negotiate. He thinks we should think about the other side. And I'll just say that I personally needed this conversation. I get timid when I try to negotiate. My hands clam up. My voice gets softer. I get scared. Here's Barry. Well, it is scary. There's a lot at stake. It's scary for me. There's money, there's reputation, there's a sense of your identity. And the problem is that we've never really been taught how to negotiate. So people think they have to be someone who they're not. They have to become a jerk. And for most people, they're not very good at being jerks. They don't like who they become. They don't do it well. And as a result, they find the whole process really unpleasant. Yeah. I can even say to the people who like negotiation, I'm worried about those folks too, because those <laughs> are the people who might enjoy being the jerk. And that that isn't any better in my perspective. Well, you know, I have a three-year-old, which means that negotiation is basically the mainstay of my household. And for my three-year-old, negotiation seems to be mostly about power and ego. How much power do I have? How can I assert that power and dominate you? Yeah. And, um, and it strikes me that, you know, in... In the worst case, out in the world, that's also how negotiation works. But, but you really ask us to think about it differently. So I'd love to back up and ask, how do we even start to think about what we're doing when we negotiate? Well, let's start actually with a negotiation with your three-year-old. Oh, gosh. Because I think the lessons there are incredibly important for adults as well. The challenge with being a three-year-old is that you can't really express yourself well. No. Nope. You don't have a large vocabulary. You may have trouble moving your tongue to even say the words that you think. And so I learned this from my colleague, Dalian Kane, with whom I teach negotiation, that the reason why the three-year-old gets upset when they don't get their way isn't just because they didn't get their way. It's they feel they aren't being understood. And that if only they could explain their position better, oh, I don't want to go to bed because there's another great story or this pool, this tub is so warm and so wonderful. And if only my parent could understand this, they would let me continue doing what I'm doing. It's like you've been in my household. What that means is that we have an obligation to make the other side's argument for them, Hmm. to help demonstrate that we understand where they're coming from. Because we can't always get our way in a negotiation, but we can always be understood. And one way to prove to the other side that you understand their perspective is to make their argument for them. And then, of course, check that it's right. Now, it's not enough just to explain their perspective. You also have to say why there's something else that's 
relevant as well. Like, well, I know you're loving being in the tub, but the fact is that my partner is coming home and we have to get dinner at some point. At some point, you're going to want to eat. And if we wait forever to be in the tub, then you're going to be unhappy later on in terms of when dinner is going to be ready. Right, right. That sends him into a loop that I also think is connected to how we out in the adult world manage negotiation. It usually sends him into the it's not fair loop. His perception of fairness, Lord knows what that is. Um, but it's not fair that I have to do this. Fair is a challenging word. And in many ways, that's what my whole book is about, right. which is understanding what a fair outcome is. What's fair doesn't depend on which side of the negotiation you're on. What's fair should be some objective criteria. And the to figure out what's fair, you need to understand what you're negotiating over. Because if you have different perspectives on what the negotiation is about, it's not surprising that the two sides will take positions and say, this is fair and not agree on what's fair. People take standard things such as proportional division. And they think somehow the party that comes in larger should be getting more. Or the one that has a better fallback is somehow in a stronger position. And it's only fair because they're bringing more to the table. They should be getting more. And as we understand the negotiation pie better, we'll realize all of those notions of fairness are misguided. So talk to us about what you mean when you talk about the negotiation pie from the title of your book. It is, so I better have an answer to that. <laughs> the pie is what the parties who are negotiating can create that's above and beyond what they would do if they don't reach an agreement. It's the reason they're having the negotiation. It's to improve their position from the no negotiation outcome. I want to pause here because this idea is the big reason I wanted to talk to Barry. It starts with the assumption that there's more value to be had in working together than working independently. And I think this is true and that it extends far beyond business. The best way to negotiate is to divide up what extra value you create in a principled way. Then everyone comes out ahead. Barry uses this story about splitting a pizza to explain. Imagine that Alice and Bob are negotiating to divide up a 12-slice pizza. In New Haven, we always think about pizzas because that's the thing we're famous for here. You got great pizza in New Haven. We do. And, uh, okay, well, you might say 12 slices, six and six, but we also have to know what Alice and Bob will end up doing if they don't reach an agreement. And so let's arbitrarily say that Alice will get four slices and Bob will get two. So it looks like Alice is in a stronger position. Alice will get twice as much as Bob if they don't reach a deal. Does that mean they should divide up the 12 slices, eight and four in the same two to one ratio? And my answer to that is no. The negotiation isn't about the 12 slices. It's about beating the four and the two or beating the six slices they can get with no deal. Huh. And so it's about those extra six slices. Right. And, and to get those extra six slices, Alice needs Bob every bit as much as Bob needs Alice. Right. And that obviously translates well outside of any pizza parlor and is really key to thinking about what a negotiation is and what it means for everybody to come away, quote unquote, winning. And more than just winning, because if you think about winning as beating your fallback, that's really not enough. What I want to know is how much better I'm doing and how much better you're doing than your fallback. And if I'm only one better than my fallback and you're five better than your fallback, my view is that's not fair and that's not something I should agree to. What do you do if you're negotiating with somebody who's completely irrational? Well, the good news is that uh, if you can persuade them 
that you care about the pie and that you care about fairness, then you have an argument, a principled argument for sticking to your guns. And what I think is understanding the pie, fairness, power is a good reason. And uh, it's true that some people will try and be obstinate. On the other hand, uh, other than your potentially irrational three-year-old, I think we've underplayed the role of logic in negotiation. We've so much emphasized the emotional part and left out the Spock part, the logic. So if you can combine Captain Kirk and Spock and bring the logic and emotion together, then you're, you're made. Barry, I'm glad you brought up emotion because I feel like emotion is the the wild card when it comes to negotiation and the reason why so many people fear it. It is difficult to figure out how to manage emotion well in a negotiation and when you can use it and when you need to throttle it. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. I think one reason why negotiations become emotional is people feel like they're being treated unfairly and they feel they're not being understood. So we solve the understood part by making the other side's arguments. And we solve the unfairness part by actually being fair and agreeing up front that we're going to be fair. So the way I like to start a negotiation is to say, why are we here together? We're here to create a big pie. And my view is we should split the pie that we create. And if we can agree to do that, now we're on the same team. Because now our objective is, how do we make the pie big? We've already solved, in some sense, the hard part. If the other side says, no, actually, I just want to be a greedy SOB and take you the best I can and take advantage of you, all right, that's going to change my whole attitude, and I'm going to have to play ridiculous games that are going to make everybody unhappy. Right. And so that's the big idea, really, is starting with this idea that the point of negotiation is to create something bigger than the sum of its parts. Bigger than the sum of its parts and split it in a fair fashion. And that's what I did in the end when I had a chance to sell my company. In the late 90s, Barry joined with a student to start a company that sold tea. They called it Honest Tea. You probably know the labels from your local supermarket. In 2011, they sold Honest Tea to Coca-Cola. And when the company was uh, 10 years old, we had an opportunity to take it to another level when Coca-Cola approached us. But it was also a scary proposition, not just for us, but for them. Uh, Coca-Cola is great at taking companies from 100 million in sales to a billion. But sadly, they're also pretty good at taking companies from 50 million down to zero. Yes. And we were afraid, both sides, that we were too small to fit into their network. Most acquisitions fail. So when you sell to a big company, you go mm-hmm. in understanding that there's a good chance that yeah. it And so we both wanted to make this pie bigger by having this be a successful acquisition. Yeah. So it, it was scary. I was sweating. And actually, what was hard was the prior negotiation with Nestle, in which when it didn't go well, my co-founder, Seth, got a letter saying how much I had deprived his family of this wonderful opportunity uh, and that no such opportunity would come uh, in our in our way in the future. Uh, so that was like, mm, this is kind of getting scary here. Uh, but actually, we agreed with Coca-Cola in the first hour of our negotiation to this formula. So it actually made the negotiations really pretty smooth. Now, we had to fight about what was the right market multiple on the sales that we could achieve on our own. And we had to argue about what were those sales we could achieve on our own, what the X was. But I'd say those are data-driven questions, not so much negotiation. So it didn't feel like a negotiation so much as a joint problem-solving exercise. 
right? I hear how critical proper preparation was for you to be successful in that negotiation. Yeah. And you talk about this, of course, in your and book. That's one of the big pieces that maybe people sh shortchange themselves on. Uh, preparation is uh, incredibly important. Mike Tyson said, everyone has a plan till they're punched in the mouth. People think that means that you shouldn't plan because whatever you plan is going to go wrong. No, you actually have to plan for what you're going to do after things go wrong. And uh, you can't just be one idea. It's like, okay, what are the different ways things could materialize? What are the arguments the other side is likely to make? Uh, let me make them and let me think about how to counter them. I also want to suggest that when you take this pie perspective, sometimes actually there's less planning. So I want to turn to a, a negotiation question that stumps our listeners time and again. And I mean, like, I, I get at least one letter a week about it and sometimes more, which is how do I negotiate my salary effectively? Um, what, what thoughts and advice do you have there? Where do you see people go wrong with that one? Um, that's a, always a, a challenge because, of course, it's one of those things that we have to continue connecting with the person we're negotiating with. When I buy a house from somebody, I don't have to see them again for the rest of eternity, whereas I am going to be negotiating with my boss. Likely, I will be continuing to interact with them. I'd start uh, with gathering information. And that ranges from what's the right time to ask, which is if they already have a budget and they've made numbers, it's going to be much harder to change them than beforehand. Uh, it's also providing information about what this company is getting, this organization is getting from your contributions. Why have you created a pie? What are the things that you've brought compared to what somebody else who might be sitting in your position would bring? So before, in some sense, asking for more money. Can we uh, get a better understanding of what it is that you are doing as a, a contribution? Right. Another is to try and understand what are the things they can provide to you that are valuable to you and perhaps not as expensive to them. Oh, that's an interesting thing to think about. So uh, vacation days might be an example of Vacation that. days could be one thing, a four-day week versus a five-day week. A lot of these are, are, are more flexible when you're joining an organization rather than you're inside the organization. But if you're leaving a job which might have had a bonus connected with it, well, one view is this new company, you're only going to be at three months. Does that mean you get no bonus? Does that mean you get three months out of the 12-month bonus, so a quarter prorated bonus? Or can they match the bonus that you would have gotten by scaling up the your performance for that one quarter times four? And so... They could do that for you without necessarily having to do it for everyone else. We're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, Barry will tell us where people go wrong. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. 
I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back with Barry Nailbuff. He often sees people make the same negotiating mistakes. A classic error is they think they're supposed to anchor a negotiation with an outrageous number. They're supposed to start, if you're trying to buy something incredibly low, if you're trying to sell something with a number that's incredibly high. And you're doing that to soften them up, to perhaps see if they can be taken advantage of. And I think it ends up being counterproductive because if I'm trying to sell you this house and you come in and the house is really worth a million and you offer me 400,000, it's like, okay, do you think I'm an idiot? Are you trying to steal this house from me? What's going on here? And their answer was, no, I was trying to just soften you up or anchor you with a low number. It's not a very good answer. So then you say, look, I have another offer for 800,000. And they say, okay, 750. You say, wait a second, do you hear me? I said, it starts with an eight. And they say, okay, 850. Well, now what's happened is they've had to move from 400,000 to 750 to 850. And now I think they're just jelly, that they have no backbone, that anything they say doesn't mean anything. And so one of the problems with anchoring way low is that you get sunk by your own anchor. Uh, yeah. And therefore, you've had no principle. What I especially like about using the notion of the pie is that you can present the idea of splitting the pie and then stick with it. Because I've made an argument that's logical, that's principled. You've made something that's arbitrary. And my view is that logic beats arbitrary. Yes. Okay. You, you see me doing the work here, thinking, thinking through that. Um, absolutely, logic beats arbitrary every single time. But there is one case when um, that you've I've heard you talk about this when it's a great thing to give a crazy number, and that's when you're actually not all that interested in necessarily the outcome. And so there's a huge opportunity for you. For example, let's just say you were invited to I don't know give a talk at a dinner in South Korea. I wouldn't say that I was doing that for anchoring. This is the uh, another lesson I argue is that. Uh, you should never say no. You should say yes if rather than no unless. And let the other side say no to you. Now, let's be clear. I'm not talking about things that are unethical or illegal here. So uh, somebody asked me to give a dinner talk in Korea and it wasn't very convenient for me. I had to be back at Yale. It turns out the day after in order to teach. So I would be flying whatever it is, 20 hours to Korea, be there for eight hours and then come back. And that was not high up on my list of uh, fun activities. So I said, well, look, here's the price. And if you're willing to do it at that price, yeah, I'll say, yes, I, I'm not claiming I'm worth it. I'm not even saying I would pay that much uh, for me, but that's not for me to decide. That's for you to decide. And if you think it's worth it, God bless you, I'll go. Uh, and in this particular case, they said yes. Uh, and I learned, by the way, that if you actually are only abroad 
for eight hours, you don't get jet lagged. You don't have enough time to get jet lagged. So, which is its own wonderful thing. Its own wonderful Although in a post-pandemic world, I have a feeling that those trips are going to happen less and less often. I, I certainly hope so. Um, okay, so anchoring, um, never say no. Say yes, if figure out what it would take for you to be happy about this deal and propose it to the other side. And because if you were going to say no to something, then you have nothing to lose at that point, right? It's you don't have a deal, and so you're walking away from Zippo. And so say, well, look, if you if you're able to provide these hours, this location, this responsibility, this salary, uh, then I'm, yes, I'm there. I love this one because I actually think that people could and should use it so much more than they do. Um, one example that I see all the time is when people are asked to moderate a panel, for example, or speak on a panel. You know, maybe there's no payment. Um, it's a use of their time and there's no reason to do it. Most people, it never occurs to most people that they could turn around and say, well, yes, if, mm -hmm. um, and create a sort of bucket of value for themselves. Maybe it's economic value. Maybe it's being featured in some way professionally to build your reputation. It just doesn't occur to people that they could be asking for anything. Yeah. A recent example of that is Jeremy O'Harris, a wonderful young playwright, was going to bring his slave play to the Center Theater Group in Los Angeles, but he was unhappy about the company of the schedule that year. There was only one play by a woman or transgender playwright. And so he said, look, I'm willing to give you my play if, yes, if we fix this next season. And by fix that, he meant a whole season featuring women and transgender playwrights. And they agreed. And so now you'll be able to see Slave Play this year at Center Theater Group. And so essentially they wanted his play he was not, he was prepared to say no, but he said, no, if this is what you do, I'm there. That's it, my yes if. Pretty, pretty awesome. We're getting close to the end of our time here. I, I wanted to just ask you a bigger question, Barry. You know, you're, you have written and thought about a lot of topics related to business and strategy over the course of your career. You're bringing this book on negotiating to us now. Why is being better at negotiating important for us? We're terrible at it as a society and that people aren't trained in it in high school. They're not trained in it in college. They look at these stereotypes from TV show programs or from fiction books with hostage negotiations and think that's what it's all about, where they see bad examples in government with presidents making ultimatums. They think that's what you're supposed to do. And I see this with my students who I love, who are passionate. They are compassionate, they are empathetic, they are smart. And they throw that all out the window when they start negotiating because they don't really know what they're supposed to do. And they're afraid they're gonna get taken advantage of. Now, if you can give people the tools, the vocabulary, the framework with which to negotiate, you don't have to be scared of it because what you're doing is working with the other side to do problem solving, to create a great value. And that's what was wonderful about Fisher and Urey's book getting to yes. It ta taught us about focusing on interests, what the person wants rather than their positions. But what that book left out was, how do we divide up this great pie that we create? And until you resolve that, you have to watch your back. And that's why I like starting with the question of, can we agree that we're going to split the pie? And if we get yeah. that, and, and the fact is, I'm never going to ask you for something more than what I'm expecting you to ask me. So I can't say I want 60%, because if I say that and you say you want 60%, we can't get an agreement. And I'm simply not willing to do 20-80 because I don't know why I should take the 20 rather than I should get the 80. 
And so the only agreement that we can both think is mutually acceptable is the 50-50. Okay, so now we've got that out of the way. Now it's, what do we do together to make this pie big? Right. And that's going to help folks not be scared of this, to reach better agreements. Also, uh, for people who've been historically marginalized and think that they're going to get less power in the negotiation because they're the small party or they have the worse fallback? No. This is helping people recognize power they've always had, but it's been denied by these uh, artificial, historical, proportional divisions. Right. Because if we're making the pie bigger, then it's on us to take the percentage of the pie that we have created together and split it. There is a sense of collaboration. You're rolling up your sleeves alongside the person you are negotiating with and building something together. And I suspect that one of the challenges with how we think about negotiation is that we think about it more like an argument. If you reframe negotiation and you, you throw out the idea of argument and you think about it more as a collaboration, that seems to be where you, you can begin to grow. Grow the pie, build trust, build a relationship. Again, none of that is possible until you've also resolved the hard part. There's two things in life you want to do, make a big pie and capture a big slice. That was Barry Nailbuff, Yale professor and author of Split the Pie, A Radical New Way to Negotiate. And this week on Office Hours, we're going to talk about negotiation. Have you ever used the collaborative approach yourself? Let us know and come with your own stories and strategies that have worked for you. Join us on Wednesday afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern. Office Hours really is our coffee break, the time when we sit down just to chill out a little bit in the company of our listeners, our friends. You can find us on the LinkedIn news page or email us for a link at hellomonday at linkedin.com. And if you like the show, please rate and review us. It really does help us so much. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Taisha Henry with help from Wesley Wingo. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Uriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Michaela Greer and Victoria Taylor make our pies bigger. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. Sarah Storm remains, as always, our fairy godmother. I'm Jesse Hempel. We're back next Monday. Thanks for listening. If you get really excited during our conversation about what volume does that sound like? Oh, my God. I can't believe it. You don't like honest tea? (laughs) 